Swimming with whale sharks was one of the most profound experiences of my life and it changed the way that I wrote fantasy creatures and animals in my novels. So in this video I want to share my lessons from this experience and give some world building advice about both creating fantasy creatures in your stories and also describing them and integrating them into your novel and your narrative in an interesting and compelling way that enriches your story and enhances your world building. The first principle here is to ask what emotion do you hope to produce? A massive reason why readers come to fantasy is for that sense of wonder, that sense of awe. Whether it's flying atop a dragon, seeing a phoenix die and be reborn, or meeting Aslan in Narnia, fantasy creatures can be an incredible pathway to generate that sense of wonder in your own book. And I think this was a really pivotal lesson that I learned from my experience with the whale shark. I remember just waiting in that water, sort of feeling this sense of like anticipation building within me. And then all of a sudden, out of nowhere, this massive shadow just kind of looms out of the water. And there's just this huge leviathan that's coming straight towards me. I sort of scrambled to the side. I was so busy getting out of the way that I didn't really appreciate the majesty of it. And then as it passed right by me, I was just struck with awe. The fact that there is this huge, immense creature just gliding peacefully past me. And I really felt such a sense of connectedness to nature. And in that moment when I was in the water beside it, I truly felt like I was in this fantasy world, just communing with this, this creature that was so far beyond my reality. That experience there, that sense of wonder, that is something that you know you can really draw from when you're expressing the creatures in your fantasy world. Of course, this sense of wonder and awe, that isn't the only emotion that you have to be producing with creatures in your fantasy stories. Animals can really be used as a vessel for any other emotion or feeling that you're trying to create. Whether it's fear or love or pride or shame or any of the other emotions that are in the gamut of the human experience. There's something about animals in particular, and I don't know what it is, but there's just something about them that gets inside your emotions and gets inside your heart and has this capacity to really produce, you know, a strong emotional resonant response within readers, whatever that emotion is that you're trying to create. And of course, one creature doesn't always have to produce the exact same emotion. This is something that can evolve. So for example, in my current work in progress, Kingdom of Dragons, which I have now got with my beta readers and the cover is currently getting colored. So very exciting to see the progress coming along with this. In Kingdom of Dragons, there are obviously a ton of dragons and the dragons produce different emotional responses at different times in the story and in different ways for different characters. So sometimes they are sources of, you know, sort of like pride and love and happiness. And then other times they are sources of dread and terror and fear. Principle number two for creating great fantasy creatures is to use the Scamper framework. Scamper stands for substitute, combine, adapt, modify, put to another use, eliminate, reverse. This can be a really effective acronym to consider when it comes to world building fantasy creatures. For example, let's take a griffin. This is a mythical creature with the body of a lion and the sort of head and front claws of an eagle, along with an eagle's wings in some cases. Or the ancient Greek chimera, which is again, the body of a lion and the tail of a snake and then the hooves of a goat. What you can probably tell from those examples is that storytellers have been mixing and matching all these different animal parts to create new creatures for millennia and it can still produce interesting results in your own world building. Along with the combine aspect of scamper which tends to get the most attention I would argue, make sure that you're considering the other approaches as well. For example the chulls in the Stormlight archive are essentially just giant crabs. They are an example of using the modify feature of scamper to simply enlarge a creature to make it feel interesting and exciting and new. So to put this principle into action, let's say that I take the whale shark for example, but I adapt them so that instead of swimming through the ocean they float through the sky instead. And then maybe instead of plankton they eat like little midges and flies instead. So perhaps in this world farmers take these sort of flying whale sharks and they basically 
use them to fly above their farms to eat fruit flies, to stop the fruit flies from destroying their crops. And then of course the last step would be I change the name so they're no longer whale sharks, they become something else. And all of a sudden we've taken the whale shark, we've run it through the scamper process and we now have a different and unique animal that makes sense within my world. Principle three for creating great fantasy creatures is consider the food chain and the ecological impact. So when you're creating your fantasy creatures, there are some really important questions that I think will make your story better if you ask them. How much habitat and space do these creatures need to exist? What do they eat? Can they live anywhere within your world or do they need very specific types of terrain or weather or climate or conditions in order to exist favorably? How has human interaction affected their existence? You only have to look at pigeons in a very populated city, for example, as a example of a creature that has adapted quite well to human existence. Dune is a great example of a book built around exploring the ecological ramifications of one creature, that is the giant sandworm, the Shai Halud, which essentially exists on this desert planet of Arrakis. And the waste product that this sandworm produces is a spice. And that spice allows people to live longer than normal and to see into the future. Essentially, what unfolds in this story from this point on it all comes from that fascinating ecological consequence of this fantasy creature. And that's why I think it's useful to ask these questions. You don't always have to be addressing, you know, every single implication of the fantasy creatures you're creating. Sometimes you just want to create a cool fantasy creature and it's not that important to address the consequences of it. But at other times, asking these questions about, you know, what do they eat? What does that result in? How can I make that more interesting? Or how can I use that as a source of conflict and tension within my story can actually lead to these really interesting narratives. And then principle number four for world building your fantasy creatures is to use creatures to develop character. And to that end, I think there's four sub principles when it comes to using creatures to develop and express and reveal character in a fantasy novel. The first is using creatures as sources of obstacles and conflict. Often creatures can serve a very sort of primal role within fantasy stories and they offer a different medium of conflict and tension for the main character to struggle against as opposed to say another human character. There's often this very unpredictable side to animals and how they behave and that can really enhance the suspense and the stakes within your book. Again referencing Dune, so much conflict and tension within that story comes from the fact that when you cross the desert you never know if a massive sandworm is gonna erupt from the dunes and swallow you whole. And that is something that is a massive source of anxiety and peril and suspense for the characters, generating a lot of narrative excitement throughout the story. The second sub principle here is that you can use animals and creatures to create sympathy and reader connection for a character. When it comes to story structure, there's this idea that in the beginning of your story, you wanna give your character a save the cat moment. So this is like, a really cliched way to make readers like your main character is, you know, they're off to work and there's a cat that's stuck up a tree and the character takes a few minutes out of his day to climb up the tree and save the cat. And because he has done this sympathetic action towards a animal, it generates a lot of sympathy and connection to that character. Now, obviously that's a very cliched example, but I think there's a lot of truth to this. When we see people save animals or be kind to animals or kind to small children, I, I would argue that serves a similar role as well, we have this sense of empathy and connection to them and we kind of see them in very favorable terms. So one easy way to have readers sort of have this sympathy and this sense of connection and to actually like your main character is to you know, use animals in a strategic way at the start of your book to generate that endearment. I think for me, this is why dragon rider stories are so appealing, right? Because quite often when the dragon is born, there's sort of this helpless infant and the main character is like, its parent almost, like they care for this little baby dragon and they help it to take its first steps or they feed it and they keep it warm and then the dragon actually grows up and becomes this a companion that you can fly on that can breathe fire and all those other cool things. But I would argue what really makes dragon rider stories 
so emotionally evocative is those early moments on in the story where the character you know is taking care of this helpless creature and that is a fantastic example of how you can be using animals to create a sense of sympathy and connection and love for your main character the third sub principle is that animals can symbolize fear to be overcome i read a comment on one of my videos the other day where someone was saying and i really agreed with their point they were saying that it's not just struggles that make characters interesting, it's the fact that struggles show the potential for that character to grow. And a very pivotal part of growth and change and transformation is the capacity to face your fears and overcome them. In this sense, animals can serve a really powerful role because you know, a human character, a human antagonist, to some extent, they maybe can be reasoned with. But animals often, like I mentioned earlier in this video, often represent this very primal force. And often that primal force cannot be reasoned with, it cannot be bargained, it cannot be bought. If you think about the Dementors in the Harry Potter series, I think they are a fantastic example of using these creatures as a way to symbolize fear, to symbolize this fear of death, of loss, of fear itself that Harry must overcome through the story. And then the last sub-principle, sub-principle four, is to consider what are the cultural attitudes towards your creatures? For example, let's say you have these fantasy animals, what are the ethics like towards that? Is this a fantasy animal that is considered by society as a pet? Is it considered as something that you can eat? Is it considered a pest? Is it considered a holy animal? Is it considered a sinful animal? You only have to look to our world for inspiration here. You know, in some cultures, there are certain animals which are totally fine to eat. In other cultures, they would think it's blasphemous to eat that animal, or they would see that animal as a pet, for example. So considering the sort of cultural attitudes towards the animals and creatures in your story, how they are different between different animals, how they are different between different cultures, can be a really ripe source of conflict and a fun way to characterize and to make your world feel more fleshed out and realistic. How to Train Your Dragon is a story built around this idea. In this story, the dominant cultural attitude towards dragons is that they are dangerous creatures that must be destroyed at all costs. And our main character is interesting and worth following because he actually develops a sympathetic connection to one of these dragons and he doesn't see them as this dangerous beast, but rather as a potential friend and an ally. Describing creatures in a compelling way. Okay, so those are the four principles for actually creating fantasy creatures. Consider the emotion you're trying to evoke. Use the scamper framework. Consider the food chain and ecological impact. And then use creatures to develop character. But now that you've actually created your creatures, how do you actually describe them in a compelling way? Before I get into that, I wanna quickly share a fantasy world building tool that I've built for myself to help me build more interesting fantasy worlds. And I think that you might find it useful as well. Fantasyworldbuilder.com is a website that asks you questions to help you craft deeper, more immersive worlds. You can hit the generate question button to be asked a random world building question. And if the question sparks something within you, you can type out your notes, hit save, and you'll begin to build a world-building Bible that you can use in your story. Ultimately, the whole idea behind this website and why I built this thing is to just get you thinking more deeply about aspects of your story's world that maybe you have never considered before. Check it out by going to fantasyworldbuilder.com and I should also mention that this is just an app I built myself and I'm definitely not an expert coder. So if you have any suggestions, whether they be for questions to add into this thing or there's bugs in it or just other comments that you'd like to share with me about this tool, feel free to let me know. Okay, so in terms of describing creatures within your fantasy world, the first principle here is to focus on a small number of vivid yet compelling details. You often don't have to worry about getting 100% of your creature across. A principle I like to think about here is the 80-20 rule, which basically states that 20% of your actions lead to 80% of your outcomes. So quite often when it comes to describing fantasy creatures, you should be thinking 80-20. You should be thinking, what are the small amount of details, that critical 20% of stuff, that if I describe these, 
readers will get 80% of the point and then they can fill in the blanks themselves. For example, in my book, The Thunder Heist, there are a ton of different sea creatures and monsters because the story is set on this floating monster infested sea. And when it came to describing one of the creatures from this world called a Mondoceros, I kept it really simple with the following one sentence description. The creature was the size of a shark with a horn longer than Kef's leg. It's a short description, but since it's described in the context of this sort of underwater gladiator fight, you know, I'm introducing this character within action. It's sort of all you really need in order to latch onto that and readers can mentally picture what that kind of looks like in their head. Of course, you can describe creatures in more detail if you want, but quite often it's useful to just give readers a sense of the most vivid, interesting details about this creature. You know, you don't necessarily need to describe that this unicorn has four legs because that's sort of gonna be in most readers' mind. The interesting thing to describe about the unicorn is obviously the horn and then maybe the way that, you know, its skin glows in the moonlight or something like this. Just picking up on these small details can be a really good way to evocatively bring the creature across without info dumping massive paragraphs about all the things that you know about this creature to the reader. The second principle here is to use all five senses. In particular, don't just rely on sight. Quite a lot of fantasy authors, and this goes for all authors in general, usually tend to over rely on sight because it is our dominant sense. It is sort of the sense that most of society is set up for. But in fact, if you actually use the senses of in particular smell and touch to describe your fantasy creatures, that's gonna feel a lot more immersive. I often find that when I'm reading very sight-based descriptions of fantasy creatures, it almost feels like a little bit CGI because they're just describing, you know, almost what the facade of this thing is like. But when you use touch and smell, there's something just so much more immersive and immediate about these senses. It really makes us feel like these creatures are real. It makes them feel alive. Smell in particular is a very underrated asset for fiction writers because it's not actually something that you can access that easily in a movie or in a TV show, but in a book, you can really dive into how a certain smell makes a character feel or the memories that it produces within them. Principle three for describing fantasy creatures is don't worry about units of measurement. I know this sounds like very oddly specific, but one of the things that I see with a lot of new writers is this tendency to describe things in terms of feet or meters and inches and millimeters and whatever it is. There's this tendency to think that if I give readers these exact measurements and exact dimensions, then somehow it makes the creature more realistic. But I often find that that is counterproductive. Personally, I think it's better to focus more on sort of vague size comparisons and let readers figure out the details in their own head. This is something that I really learned through writing Kingdom of Dragons, for example, because the dragons in the story, they go from being little babies at the start of the story to being full grown by the end of it. And it would have been really cumbersome to say like, Dapple is now 10 feet long or Dapple is now 40 feet long or whatever I wanted to say. Instead, it's much easier to say things like, now Zora could no longer carry Dapple because he had grown bigger or, now Dapple is big enough for Zora to ride on him, or now he's big enough for Zora to fly on him. This actually has a double benefit for the reader because by describing the functional implications of a creature's size, the reader will sort of translate that into dimensions that make sense for them. So if I say, this dragon is now big enough for an adult to fly on it, then one reader might go, ah, oh, okay, so the dragon's 30 feet long, of course. And then another reader might say, ah, oh, okay, the dragon must be 60 feet long. Both readers will come up with their own sort of unique interpretation of this creature but it will make sense for them because you have described the function that their size has to relate to. Of course, this all happens at a subconscious level and you still have to retain some control over the size implications and suggestions that you're making. For example, to avoid any issues with creatures fitting into spaces where readers 
think for some reason they won't be able to fit into. And then last principle, number four for describing fantasy creatures is draw from your own life experiences to ground your descriptions in emotional truth. Look, I've never seen a dragon, but when I have climbed mountains and seen like a majestic eagle land like a dozen feet away from me and been filled with a sense of a combination of utter awe that I was seeing this magnificent creature, but also quite a lot of fear that maybe this thing was about to attack me. That is an experience that I can really draw from the emotional truth of that when it comes to, say, writing about a dragon in my fantasy story. And when you can be doing this, taking these experiences, these sort of emotional experiences from your life and infusing and warping them into your story, that is when your story starts to feel resoundingly true.